We've been studying the Gospel of Luke for a season, and we will come back to that and finish it. But a couple of weeks prior to this, I was just going through my own kind of study of the Scripture, as I try to do most mornings like you do, and uh, just really felt impressed by the Lord that it might be time for us to look at the names of God, specifically as they are revealed to Abraham and Sarah, kind of in, in and around their lives. We won't go through all of them. But I think that's important for us to be able to do because when God reveals himself and he gives us a name, he's shedding some light on who he is, who his character is, and how we relate to him. And those insights that Abraham and Sarah were learning about the Lord from that, they apply to us the same way today and help us to be able to relate to the Lord. Now, you recognize, I, I know, and I know this, many of you know what your name means. Your parents picked it out very much on purpose. My parents looked in a book, Jeff, got it. I have no idea what it means. You'll probably come up and tell me afterwards. I won't believe you. I think Hallmark cards are made for this name thing just so we buy that stuff. I don't know. But in the Bible, names meant something, right? I mean, and, 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 and I wish I had like great stories about what my children's names mean. We named them after family members. You know what I mean? Like it was that kind of thing. But this is very different and it's very important for us to see the nuances of what God says. When he says, I am your shield, what does that mean? How does that apply to us? And how does that mean something to us? Well, we're going to look at a passage of scripture today from the book of Genesis chapter 12 that uses the name Lord. And we're going to see how that related to Abraham and how he responded to that. And then we're also going to just kind of tie up today's sermon time with just a quick look, not a long look, but a very quick look at what this means in light of current events that are happening around the world and in the Middle East. Now, when we find Genesis chapter 12, and, and it really, we're introduced to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in Genesis chapter 11, they have different names. It's Abram and Sarai. I'm not gonna get that right today. I'm gonna say Abram and Abraham, it's the same person. This kind of happens in scripture when there's a name change. And you think about it, we don't call Peter Simon, the apostle Peter, we don't call, it's Simon Peter, or he was Simon who became Peter. Same way with the apostle Paul, who was Saul, who became Paul. So if I say Abraham today, and obviously the text says Abram, we're talking about the same person. If I say Sarah today, it's just because Sarai is hard. You know, it's just a, I'm sorry. You know how I am and I can't do it. Uh, in weakness, I confess to you. So uh, you'll hear the same people. That's what we're talking about. Now let's go ahead and get ready to read this. And as we do, I'm gonna give you just a quick background from chapter 11. We won't read from chapter 11, but Abram and his wife, Sarah, were living in a place called Ur, you are, and it's far, far away to the east. And with their family, they traveled hoping to get to the land of Canaan, but they ended up in a place that was north of there called Haran. And then that's where we pick up where God begins speaking to Abraham right here in this passage. Let's read Genesis chapter 12, verse one. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all peoples on earth will be blessed through 
you. Now, immediately what you see is that a name given, and it's given there, Lord. In your Bible, maybe it's just like mine is, it's all capitalized, and we'll get to what that means in just a second. But I want you to notice something right here. This is following a biblical pattern that we see throughout all the scripture. God speaks, we respond. We oftentimes get that backwards and we think that we negotiate with God or we speak to him and then he must respond to us. It just doesn't work that way. Think about it. Genesis chapter one, God speaks the earth into existence. And the word used for God there is it's, it's God, it's not Lord. It's really when God becomes to be in relationship with us that we begin to see this word Lord being used in Genesis chapter two kind of on. We begin to see terms like this, the Lord God. And now Abram hears the Lord. And this is very important that we understand this idea of God speaking and us responding. If we miss that, we often, we often kind of times don't understand that what we're doing is we're making us God and God in the position to be subservient to us. If you answer this prayer, I will whatever. Well, what if he doesn't answer? Are you God then to choose not to worship him? You understand, God speaks we respond. That, that's always the, what happens. We even talk about it in prayer here, that, that, that prayer is really a response to God's work in our lives, isn't it? It's a response to what God is doing around the world, and we see that and we go back to him. So understand that that's right there. And, and in Genesis chapter one, we see it's God doing this, and he starts with the Lord God in Genesis chapter two. And now we get to this idea of the Lord, and it's, it's the word that you will hear sometimes, Yahweh sometimes called Jehovah or Jehovah, or even sometimes Adonai. In the English Bible, it's always capitalized, and it emphasizes God's eternal existence and his continual presence, and it's rooted in the fact that he is the one who causes everything to be. Now, understand what that means for a second. I just gave you this kind of word, Yahweh. And, and, and what's great about this, I, I love these names, and I love that we sing that song, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, Yahweh. The Jews would have a little bit of an issue with that. It's like, we, no, we, just, we don't say that name. That's a name we don't say. That's why we have Jehovah, you know, that, that we come to that. But the idea is rooted again. If he's the Lord, then it means that, that he is eternal in his existence and continual in his presence. And this is very important for Abraham because Abraham is coming from a group of people that were idolaters, everywhere around him, all idolatry. And this means I am above something. I'm, I'm different than those. And, and I'm, I'm different than them in a very special way. If we went back a little bit into chapter 11, we would read about the Tower of Babel. You remember that, that God dispersed those people because they were doing something. Remember they said, we're gonna build a tower and make, we will make a name for ourselves, they said. Many scholars believe that at the top of that tower were, were almost like zodiac signs and symbols where idolatry was supposed to take place. We will make our name great. Everything is different here. Abraham is dealing with God and God's saying, I will. And we're gonna see those in a minute. That God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Again, who's doing the initiation and who's doing the responding? God initiates, we respond. And, and this point of revelation tells us something about God over and against who all these other gods are because he is eternal and continual, meaning that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. He is the same God. Time doesn't go back farther than Genesis. And so any God that comes, comes for, uh, after that is man-made and is lesser. I want you to understand that. It's very important that you see that. God spoke the world into existence, it says, out of nothing. He didn't need components to be made, and then he did that. And, and this is not a, a sermon about creationism, but I do want to say something about that that I think is very important, especially for the day in which we're living, where everyone says, we know that evolution is a fact. Prove it. You can't. No species has morphed from one to another. You didn't come from a tadpole. If you did, we are in bad, bad shape. When I was growing up, in the 90s. How many of you remember the 90s? It was great. It's wonderful. Grunge music came on the scene, flannel shirts, long hair, jeans that were actually comfortable to wear, you know? They were big. But there was something else Christian t shirts. My favorite Christian t shirt said, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke, and bang, there it was. So people say things like this. I, I believe that, that, that an explosion happened. Have you ever watched an explosion? Has anything ever been formed out of it? Order doesn't come from chaos without something grabbing it and making it. God did that. Now you say, well, do you believe in evolution? No, I believe that if God lied to us in the first pages of the Bible, we're sunk for the rest of it, folks. How did he do it? I don't know. But he said he spoke it out of nothing. We have to trust it. God speaks, we respond. God initiates, we respond. God has never been created. He existed before time began. We often think about time and, and we think we have such a great understanding of it. We don't. We can see just a little bit in the past, a very, very short bit in the present, but we can't see even five minutes from now. But God stands beyond the continuum of time and space and matter and he sees it all at once. He has it all in front of him. He, he's not like us trying to guess at what's going to come. He sees it all and he reveals himself this way. Yahweh exists outside of time and space. Well, there's something about that, that that's very important. God created in Genesis and we respond. And God wanted it to be. He's the prime mover Nothing comes into being outside of what he's ordained. But something about this experience with Abraham meeting the Lord and the Lord saying, I'm the Lord and, and go out from your land and your relatives changed Abraham's life. And I want you to see it. Let's keep reading verse four and we'll read to verse eight. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And then he took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land into the site of Sechem at the Oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were still in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and he pitched his tent and Bethel was on the west, Ai on the east, and he built an altar to the Lord there and called on the name of the Lord. There are two very important things that we see and we may just read that and miss it, but two very important things about Abram's response to the Lord. First, when God spoke, if God's the initiator, what does he do? He responds, he listened, and he obeyed. He didn't say, but oh man, it's so much nicer up here. I've never been down south. 
What if I don't like it? All my family's here. Everything I've ever known was, was I've only lived two places, Lord. You took us from Ur over here and, and now we live up here in the north and, and you want us to go down? I mean, I don't know. I, I, no, it said he left. When God spoke, he listened and obeyed. Secondly, it said he began to call on the name of the Lord in verse eight. What's he doing? He's worshiping the Lord. He's setting aside the foreign gods that he served in the past. And now what he's doing is he's focusing on the Lord, his God, who has revealed himself to be higher above and over and against every other God that he would have known in his life. And he's saying, this is the God who's worthy for me to worship. Well, God had spoken to him and said, I'm going to do some things. There were promises, right? We see eight of them in verses one, two, and three. These I will statements, I'm gonna give you the land. I'll make you a nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who dishonor you. And all peoples of the world are going to be blessed because of you. This is the establishment of the nation of Israel. God is doing something. God's always wanted a people for himself. If you think you're highly relational today, you get that from your father because he's highly relational. Think about it. God created the world and could have said, well enough, let's leave it alone. And instead he made Adam and Eve. And I love that the scripture says he used to come down and, and hang out with them, walk in the cool of the garden. I mean, just his presence was known there. They weren't strangers to one another but they sinned and what happened? They were cast out and then God, God picks a family. He says, Noah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe off the face of the earth and we're gonna we're start over again with Noah. It's gonna be great. And then the tower of Babel and he disperses people again. And now with Abram, he picks him and he says, I'm going to do these things in your life. And it's the establishment of what God's doing. And this is also God's plan of redemption for all mankind because he says, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world through you. What's he mean? Jesus. Jesus is a far, 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 far off distant relative of Abraham. And the whole world is going to be blessed through that. Now, it's important to point out, and I think always good for us to be reminded of this, is that there's nothing that Abraham did that was so special to get God to choose him. It doesn't work that way. God didn't look down and go, oh, here's somebody we can work with. He's got it all figured out. He didn't have any of it figured out. And in fact, as we read the pages of scripture, he stumbles along the way as he tries to obey the Lord, just like we do. Because the scripture is true when it says, there's none who see God, none who are righteous, none who follow after God. We're all like sheep. We go off on our own and we run as far away from God as we can. That, that's what we do. There was nothing innate in this man that made God pick him. He wasn't awesome. That's what all of the biblical heroes have in common with us. They're not awesome. They're just people, except for one, Christ Jesus the Lord. There's a difference there. And, and this is important for us to see that because the walk of faith for us is just like that. You stumble and you don't get it right. You think, why should God pick me to do this? Why would God allow me to do this? And the answer is because he did. It had nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. I mean, there's nothing good in any of us that God would say, hey, you be on my team. That's not how it works. Nobody's picked last. Nobody's picked first. We're all just beggars looking for bread. Lord, give us some. Give us some. Help, help us. And God reaches down and he touches us. 
But what Abraham had that we can learn from today is that he listened and obeyed the Lord and decided to worship him. When the, invoca- when the invitation came to follow the Lord, he listened. I want to fast forward a couple thousand years to the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. But when Jesus comes, the apostle Paul says this about him in Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. There's a common word there. Did you notice it? Lord. Abraham becomes a person who's worshiping the Lord. And now Jesus is revealed to us as the Lord. And the same thing applies to us. If we're going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to know God the Father, there has to be a point in our lives where we recognize Jesus is Lord and we respond to that and begin to obey. Have you ever done that? Has there ever been a time in your life where you recognized your need for Christ and that he had to be the Lord of your life. Now, I wanna make a quick distinction here because a lot of time people say, I know Jesus saved me and that's part of it. That's really important to know that we're saved, but we can't separate that he's our savior and our Lord. It doesn't work that way. He's one and the same. And so what that means is if he's going to be Lord of my life, it means that he is over everything He's over it all. God is over everything. And so if he's Lord of all, then that means that my life is humbled before him. And it's humbled in two ways. Can I tell you about what that means? A person comes to Christ when they humble themselves enough to say, I don't have it all figured out. And in fact, I'm outside of God's will because I haven't been living my life according to the word of God. The scripture calls that confessing our sin. We agree with God that we're sinners. I mean, that's a humbling experience, isn't it? For us to say, hey, I don't have it figured out. I, I, I've been outside of God's will. I've stepped out of God's plan. And you say, well, I, I might not even know what God's plan is. Exactly, right? We're, we're outside of it. And so we have to humble ourselves and admit that we're a sinner. And the Bible says that if we believe that Christ is Lord, we can be saved. Well, how is he Lord? Well, the Bible says that all that stuff that you did in your life, Jesus went to the cross and he died for that. He died for it with arms nailed to a cross, open wide for you to come running to him. And I want to, to just remind you, he died for the things that you don't want anybody to know about, the things you're most ashamed of, the things that you say, no one could love me because of this. I wouldn't want anybody to know that. He died for all of that. He created you. He knows it all already. He's not shocked by it. And giving his life to you The question is, have you received his grace and forgiveness and made him be the Lord of your life? There's humbling part number two. If he's the Lord, he's the boss. It means he's in charge. It's not what you think about everything. It's not what he thinks about it. Remember, he initiates, you respond. God's word says, do this. Okay, I need to do that. God's word says, Don't do this. Okay, I need to stay away from that. That, That's the process of him being the Lord of our lives. And and we say this every year as we get to Vacation Bible School, but I think it's so good. It really is as simple as A, B, C. Admit that you're a sinner. 
believe that Christ Jesus died on the cross in your place. Ask him to forgive you of those sins and trust that he is the savior and commit your life to him. And that's it. And you say, well, do you really believe that a child can understand that? Guess what? Abraham did not have a degree in theology when he came to know the Lord. He didn't know anything except the Lord spoke to him. You don't have to know anything except that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. That's it. You, You don't have to have it all figured out yet. Nobody does. That's faith, isn't it? Walking with the Lord. If you've never done that today, I want to challenge you. Is Christ Jesus your Lord? Not did you say a prayer somewhere at some time in the past. I mean, is he your Lord? Have you given him your life? Are you living your life submitted to his will? Well, that's the challenge for all of us, isn't it? Even for those of us who have. Because it could be today that we find ourselves, I know that Christ is my Savior and Lord, but... Ooh, in this area, I have not been living like it. I need to bring that under the lordship of Christ. What does that mean? I need to bring my life and make it conform to what Christ says. Well, we do that. We listen and obey like Abraham and blessings follow. It's what happens. God begins to bless our lives and, and he begins to have his presence continually with us And that was the start of it right here. And that kind of leads us to the current day in which we live. And I want to just say a few things before we get to a moment of invitation about what's happening in our world in the Middle East. People always ask me when these things flare up, is this the big one? Is this the one we should be watching for? I don't know. Let's wait and find out. It's pretty simple. God says it's going to happen. We can trust it. We can watch for it. I'm not a predictor of the future, but I am a reader of the scriptures. And the book of Revelation tells us about a very specific geographic location where at some time in the future, all of the kings of the earth will array themselves in battle against Christ Jesus the Lord. It's called the plain of Megiddo. I've been there. I've seen it. It's beautiful. It's vast. And it's going to be a bloodbath because Jesus Christ is going to vanquish his foes once and for all. We know that that's going to happen. When will it happen? I don't know. That's why we read and that's why we study. But I want to say something about prophecy. We will know when we know. Is that simple? Nod your head. We will know when we know. There are a couple of prophetic books that contain things that have still yet to be fulfilled, right? Revelation's out in front of us. Parts of Daniel are out in front of us. Parts of the gospels out in front of us. Parts of the epistles out in front of us. But here's what I would say about that. The problem with, with prophecy, and we love to give the Jews a hard time in the Old Testament, right? Why didn't they understand anything? Well, what do you know about future events? You're seeing it through a, a picture that's not fully colored in yet. The outline is there. You kind of understand a little bit about it, but, but you're seeing, a, I mean, just a vague description of it in these things. But what happens is when those events start happening, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. So I have an admonition for you about the time and the days in which we're living. Don't become a nut reading only the book of Revelation. There are 65 other great books in the Bible that color the book of Revelation for us. Anybody who builds their ministry only on the book of Revelation, beware. There's 65 other books. And as we read those, guess what that does to the book of Revelation? It gives us context about all those things, doesn't it? 
And, and I hope you read the book of Revelation. I read it at least once every year, sometimes twice. It's very important for you to see that, but it's too narrow of a view of the scripture just to camp out there only all the time. Well, how should we feel about what's happening in Israel right now? And what should we do about it? I wanna remind you of something. God started his nation here. I will make you a nation. He's not finished with them yet. Can I read to you from the book of Romans chapter 11? I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. There's that name again. From the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I'm the only one that's left, and they're trying to take my life. What was God's answer to him? I've left 7,000 for myself who've not bowed to Baal. In the same way then, there's also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now if by grace, then it is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. If I'm reading the Old Testament and you ask me to find my favorite prophet, it's Elijah. I love him, he's awesome. He's so bold and he's so scared all at the same time. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Again, he's not special. He's just chosen by God to do something for his time. I mean, just nothing about him was like, oh, let's commend him, he's great. No, he didn't have it all figured out either. And he goes up on this place in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, this story of him calling down fire from heaven and killing all the prophets of Baal. And I mean, it's like this ah, moment, right? Like, yes, we got him. The very next chapter, he's hiding under a tree going, God, kill me, there's nothing left. What? Dude. Fire from heaven, there's a lot left. You just took care of the problem. And he starts this whining thing with God. You ever, you, you wouldn't whine to God. I know you, you're much better than that. You're better than the prophets. I sometimes whine to God. That's so hard. Nobody's paying attention to me. That's what he's saying, it's just me. You can kind of hear him, a little sniffle. And God says, you don't know what you're talking about. There's 7,000 people that never bowed the knee to Baal. Go back. Build something out of that. I'm not finished. I'm not done with the work. And I want to just say this. Uh, when we look at Israel, we understand that God's not done with his work there yet. Many have tried to rid the world of God's people, and they have all failed. Read the book of Esther. They have failed. Read world history to understand that Hitler and the Nazis, nor the communists, could rid the world of the Jews. They have all failed. And that's a warning sign to us as well to be very careful in how we treat God's people. I've been watching the news and you see people say, death to Israel, death to God's people. Careful. Don't find yourself on, on the side fighting against what God might be doing. Now, I, I wanna just say this out loud so that we can all understand where I'm coming from. Israel has a right to defend itself like every nation in the world. I don't know why it's only them. They have no right to defend themselves. Let me help you with something. When thousands of people are killed in any country and hundreds of people are taken hostage, you think there's a country in the world that's like, yeah, it's cool, just do whatever you want. No. We fought a whole war about that for 20 years. Do you remember that? It's, it's a, it's a God-given right. And as long as I am privileged to be your pastor, we will absolutely support Israel as God's people chosen by God, whether they are right 
and we will call them when they are wrong because they're not perfect. They're just like us. At the same time, how do we deal with the fact that we, we look at a world like in Gaza where it seems like people are suffering? Well, this is something that I feel like our world is missing. We only live in one extreme or the other. There's no ability for people to think and hold two competing ideas in their mind at the same time. Guess what Jesus did? He died for Israelis, Americans, and Gazans. One day when we get to heaven, guess who's gonna be there? A lot of people you think probably won't. A lot of people that you overlooked, a lot of people, they're all gonna be there because every tribe and tongue and nation is gonna be represented with a throng of humanity there to the glory of God the Father and the praise of Christ the Son. It's going to happen. And so as we look at these things, we don't wanna find ourselves not supporting God's people, but we don't wanna find ourselves being humanitarian in our relief for those who are suffering wherever they may be. It's yes, both. Those are not exclusive ideas to one another. Just war with a just response is appropriate. And so we pray for peace in the Middle East, and you should. A better prayer is what we find at the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because when we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, that will finally usher in peace. The Bible says that one day Christ will return. The Bible says that he's going to split the eastern sky like a thief in the night. We won't be ready for it. No, I mean, we won't know the date. For those of you who are directionally challenged, east, that way. I think about it when I wake up in the morning and look out the back door of my house and I see the sun rise. Because one day the sun will come again and no force of earth will stop him. The dead in Christ will rise and they will come and greet us and call us home. And on that day, we won't have to pray for peace anymore. Every foe will be vanquished and Christ will be Lord of all. And until that day, we listen and obey sharing the love of Christ with anyone who will listen to us, ministering in the name of Christ because that's what it means for him to be our Lord. I wanna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and as we enter into this time of response, here it is again, the Lord has spoken through his word and now you have a chance to respond. Have you ever submitted your life to Christ so that he is the Lord of your life? Has there ever been a time? If not, why wouldn't you give your life to Christ today? What's holding you back? Is it your pride? I don't need him. That's not true. We all need him. Are you ashamed? He knows all about it. He created you. He's seen it all. He died for you. He loves you. Is it control? Oh, you're not controlling near what you think you are. 
God's in control. Maybe just do like Abraham did and just call on his name and say, Lord, save me. Right now, where you're at, just quietly before the Lord, Lord, save me. What about those of you who are in Christ already? You know, sometimes we know what it means for him to be our Lord, but there becomes a moment where we want to snatch back control. And there's an area of our life, lives that we're holding off limits to him right now, and that doesn't work. Would you do like Abram did when he stumbled and just say, I call on the name of the Lord again. And this area, you have it. It's yours. Father, in this moment, we want to bow our hearts before you to trust you. Lord, may you move in power today and save someone. And may you move in power over our lives so that we respond to you and in every area of our lives, you are Lord. We ask these things in the name of Christ, we pray, amen.